So we're approaching very quickly the month of Rabi al Awun, the month wherein the Prophet was born. And, um, you know, one of the things that's uh, kind of interesting are all of the conversations that tend to take place around the idea of the mawlid of the Prophet the birth of the Prophet and you know you have people who will say that there's uh, like any sort of celebration of the birth of the Prophet is is unacceptable without really defining what a celebration is you know like the question of how does one celebrate is an important question but that usually doesn't that's not usually part of the, the conversation. And the Prophet ﷺ himself said that he fasts on the day of Monday and it was the day wherein he was born. So the type of celebration is an interesting question. Um, but irregardless, there's certain things that are not really um, can't really argue over them, you know. So like the importance of studying the life of the Prophet ﷺ and specifically taking some time to do that at this time of the year, it's not really something you can kind of argue over. The other thing that I think is interesting is you have various works on the mawlid of the Prophet them, various works on the birth of the Prophet them, and it seems like in our community at this point, generally when people think of a mawlid, they think of like a bunch of poetry and people singing songs and stuff like that, and that's a mawlid. And that, that is you know, a, a type of celebration of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. But an interesting thing, when you start to look at the things that have been written historically, is that they don't always take that form. So, um, for example, there's a mawlid that's written by Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, who's generally considered more on the so-called, you know, for lack of a better term, conservative side. But his mawlid is very simple. It's just a bunch of hadith that explain the life of the Prophet And the mawlid of al-Iraqi is also the same. These are people who are hadith scholars. So generally it's just a list. Um, Al-Warazanji is very similar. Uh, Ibn, uh, I think it's Ibn Nasr al-Din is very similar. So there's many works in this, this area. And I thought about doing something like that, but then didn't settle on it. Then I thought about doing the uh, the Sirah of Martin Lings, and I didn't settle on it. I just felt like it's it's very long. Generally, people I feel like people don't really have patience. So if if you do a text that takes thirty sessions, people get kind of bored and stuff. So you know, decided not to do that. So then that landed us in this with this book. So this book is called Munya to Sail. So there's kind of like multiple genres of writing about the Prophet Of course, one, one of them that's very clear is to just narrate hadith, right? Just a bunch of hadith. Um, another one would be this Mawlid literature, which again, usually deals more like with the stuff that's leading up to the birth of the Prophet and then the stuff afterwards kind of moves more quickly. Um... And then you have this genre of shama'il. Shama'il is a very important genre of hadith literature. Not that much is translated, but it's starting to increase. <coughs> so the shama'il is basically, generally it's hadith, but the hadith are structured in a way that is to describe the characteristics of the Prophet them. So they usually start with his physical description overall, and then like his hair, the 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 mark of prophethood that was between his shoulder blades, um, his height, his this, his that, how he used to sleep, how he used to stand, how he used to walk, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now go on to his character attributes and so on and so forth. That's shema'il. Uh, even still, if we take a book of the shema'il, it's sometimes kind of long still. And probably the most famous book that's written in and <coughs> on this topic or compiled on this topic is the shema'il of Imam Tirmidhi who was one of the six major narrators of hadith in the Sunni tradition, right? So in the in the Sunni tradition, we have six major books, or seven major books, depending on how you look at it, of hadith. 
that there's Bukhari and there's Muslim and there's a Tirmidhi who's the one we just mentioned there's Abu Dawood Ibn Majah and who else Nasa'i these are the six and then some you can also add the Muwatta of Imam Malik some people add the Muwatta so the Muwatta is very reliable so you know Tirmidhi is very highly regarded Hadith scholar is the point and he wrote a book called On the Shama'in that's kind of probably like the more famous one but again, it's long. So what we have here in this text is, uh, this text is by uh, <coughs> Sayyid al-Alama Muhammad Abdul Hay Ibn Abdul Kabir al-Kattani, rahimahullah ta'ala. And uh, basically what he says in the beginning of it was that he had completed a, t- a reading and a teaching of the Shama' al-Tirmidhi with his students. And afterwards, he wanted to basically do a quick summary of it. So in the quick summary of it, he'll take like one hadith from each chapter. So instead, like each topic, he'll take one hadith that basically summarizes the whole thing. Then he'll give you a few words and you move on to the next one. So rather than being like four or five hundred pages, it's like 40 or 50 pages. You know, it's, it's, but you can get the gist of what he's, uh, he's trying to get at. This individual, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Hayd Katani, rahimahullah ta'ala, is a very, very important name in... Uh, in uh, kind of like more recent Muslim history. Some of you may know uh, Sayyidina Ihsan and Kattani at Sound Hearts. This institution in like Upland area, Sound Hearts. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. But um, Sidi Ihsan is uh, kind of like one of those undercover people in the community. Not that many people really know who he is. But <coughs> basically he was teaching people in his area for like 20-30 years, the last 20 years they'd have a weekly gathering and they'd come to his house and stuff and they said we want to do something that like our families can attend our wives can come to, it's more public, so on and so forth so basically they started an institution and he just teaches from there and he works, he has like a full time job and whatever and he teaches there and they have like different gatherings of the kid and stuff like that the Kataniya, this family Kataniya are a huge family of ilm huge family of knowledge and uh, and piety there's many many people from from the family in the modern you know this Sheikh Abdul Hay died in 1962 but <coughs> there's people that uh, were before and after him that were very uh, very prominent as well um, uh, uh, I want to read you this statement this thing that uh, was sent to me about Abdul Hayd Katani before we move on <coughs> mm. it's a statement from this guy named Bernard Newman who wrote a book called Morocco today so I'm gonna read you this little passage it's not too long so inshallah you can bear with me he says, long before I left England, I had decided that there was one Moroccan I must meet. The Sharif Abdul Hayd Katani is the most learned man in Morocco. Indeed, he ranks high among the savants of the Orient. It's such a like, yeah. He has preached the grand sermon at Mecca. The Pope receives him with honor. He is head of the Kataniya fraternity, approximately equivalent to a religious order like the Jesuits or Franciscans, though not so large or so powerful. A fraternity was usually founded by some holy man who preached by a group of followers, so on and so forth. His library is famous, and he himself has written more than 200 books. Even allowing for his greater age, such a total and all books of wisdom made my own 75 appear as the outpourings of a beginner. Pilgrims come from far beyond the Moroccan borders to seek his barakah or blessings when he travels. Astaghfirullah, thank you. Thank you. When he travels, he is received with high honor in a dozen countries. Although so far as is known, he never struck a blow in anger. His enemies are afraid of him, of his prestige and his mind. After talking with him for two hours, it is not often that a man can feel that he is in close contact with the wisdom of the ages. At times, it was like listening to Moses. He talked with great animation. His vitality for his age was amazing. So was his memory. He quoted aptly from all the philosophies of the world. The sincerity of his comment emphasized even simple points. Truth is like oil and water. It comes to the top. Now he plunged into history, again with rare erudition. No matter where the conversation turned, he spoke with the assuredness of an encyclopedia, yet without a trace of pomposity. He flattered me more than once by assuming knowledge on my part on subjects of which I was profoundly ignorant. (laughs) That's the guy's quote. 
So he's he's a you know a, a big person. Most of the kind of like um, most of the uh, how should I say the chains of narration and Asanid and stuff like that. They usually there's a handful of people that they kind of revolve around in the modern period. He's one of them. So uh, in any case, we'll mo- we'll move on and begin. Inshallah. So he starts off with this hadith in uh, Tirmidhi that the book begins with. And it's quite a long narration. So I'm going to summarize it uh, in, in different ways. The point in, in doing this is to remind ourselves of the qualities of the Prophet wasallam as we come to uh, upon the month of his birth. The month of his birth is important because this is the most uh, you know, this is a really big incident in history. It's the birth of the Prophet sallallahu And, uh, you know, some some scholars would say that, you know, the entirety, you know, the Prophet sallallahu summarizes everything in existence. And everything in existence is a trace of some quality that he had sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of conversation around that. But the, the point is that he was the best person that's ever existed. And he is the best of all of God's creation. And so it's worth it's worthwhile to know a little bit about him. So he says about him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was not excessively tall, nor was he short. Nor was he extremely white in complexion, nor was he very dark. His hair wasn't... Uh, really curly nor was it straight Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent him as a messenger when he was 40 years old and he died when he was 63 Uh, and when he died there were only a hand you know a very small number of white hairs in his beard sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he uh, and then there's other narrations you know he says that he seemed like he was tall you know if he was around other people he seemed that he was the taller amongst them and um, but not like over not not so much so that it would make the other people look short this is just the, like the way that the Prophet was in, in the way that he uh, kind of like fit in with the people so this is uh, the first narration it mentions all of that it also mentions that the Prophet uh he his build was such that his his body was flat like he didn't have a stomach that stuck out them his shoulders were broad and his neck was strong and he wasn't really hairy but he had hair like on his arms and on his legs and on his shoulders and stuff like that uh whoever saw him um, his his hands were strong, but they 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 were strong and like fleshy in a sense. But they were soft. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He. No one has no one has been seen before him or after him that is comparable to him. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. His face was not round, but it was more um, oval-ish. And uh, his the white of his eyes was extremely white, and the dark of his eyes was extremely dark. And uh, he he had hair in the places that I mentioned. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was uh, the, most, the most beautiful of people in, in, in their heart and the most free from all people from any defect. He was the most honest of all people in his speech and the most easygoing of them in his way of doing things. And he was the most generous of all people, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Man ra'ahu fajatan, this came up yesterday. Man ra'ahu fajatan irta'ada lihaybatihi wa man khalatahu ahabbahu duna kulli shay. The one who saw him and uh, like without expecting to see him would be overtaken with awe. Like, whoa, who is this? Right? And the person who interacted with him, then they would love him more than they loved anything else. Uh, he was he was in and of himself magnificent. 
and in the eyes of people he was even more magnificent sallallahu alaihi wasallam his his face was illuminated like the moon on the 14th night of the month in the middle of the month um, and uh, his eyebrows were were like thick and almost touching but not quite touching sallallahu alaihi wasallam and some of them said that they were touching so you know some of the there's a little bit of debate like what did that exactly mean did were, were his eyebrows connected was there a small gap was there you know so on but they were thick and they were almost touching sallallahu alaihi wasallam um okay then he goes on to mentioning the seal of prophethood seal of the prophethood so i'm going to read this part because the first one i was skimming a little bit because the narration is huge of the description of it. now the narrations are shorter so i won't i won't have to skim them inshallah كان في ظهره خاتم متجسد so he had a small uh, mark, like a birthmark in his back between his, the area between his shoulder blades and it was, it looked like the size of a pigeon's egg so it's like very small um, and it says it's a little bit closer to the left side than the right side وَكَانَتْ بَيْنُ الْكَتَفَيْنِ أَوْ إِلَى جِهَةٍ يَسَارِ أَقْرَبْ عَلَيْهَا So this is uh, the description of that. This is important because this was just something that was known in the old books. That this last prophet when he comes, he's going to have this particular birthmark that's going to be in this place in his body. That's why in the story of Salman al-Farisi, uh, if you guys remember, in the towards the end of the story of Salman, I mean the end of where he finds the prophet he's he he takes him and he tests him in a couple <coughs> different ways right so he had been told these are he had been told from the people who knew from the previous scripture what are the qualities of this person he knew that he's going to come in this particular area which was close to medina and so on and then he knew that he would be someone who doesn't accept sadaqah but will accept gifts and he knew that he has this mark of prophethood on his back so Sun Man comes when he finds this person who's he, he hears as a prophet. He brings him some, some uh, food and he tells him it's sadaqah. And the Prophet them takes it and he gives it to his companions. He doesn't eat from it. And then the next day he comes and he brings him another thing and he says it's a gift. It's not sadaqah. So that he eats, the Prophet gives it to his guests or his companions and he eats from it too. So the next time he sees the Prophet them, he's actually in a tree and he's kind of like trying to get a get like a, a look at this <laughs> mark in the back and the prophet them knew that he was doing that so he kind of adjusted himself a little bit so that he could see it and when he saw it son man radiallahu uh, kissed him and held him and you know told him his story so when certain people who knew of that sign they knew of it then they knew that that was that was a sign that he was the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam the next section is on the hair on his hair sallallahu alaihi wasallam so it says, كَانَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ يُوَفِّرُ شَعْرَهُ قُلْتُ So generally what he does is he'll mention like a little piece of the narration and then the shaykh will give his comments on, on, the, on the, like his summary of it all. So he says, the Prophet them used to leave his hair to grow. Then the author says, not as a imitation of his people, but rather out of the imitation of the Prophet's that this was something that the prophets used to do. And uh, they say that in the verse, for example, where um, in Surah Taha, when Musa السلام, has his uh, confrontation with Harun, right? So when Musa goes away and Harun stays behind and then the people start worshipping the idol and Musa comes back and he's upset and there's the verse that says, Qala, uh, Oh, oh, my, my brother, um, don't, don't grab me by the beard and don't, don't grab me by my, by my head or my hair. In um, one of the commentaries on the Quran, they say this is an evidence for the growing of one's hair and to not shave it. And the Prophet ﷺ, I have to rectify my condition now. I've been shaving my head since I was like 15 and I'm reading this and I'm like, whoops. 
need to review need to review this one. It's not like it's haram or something. It's not the point, right? It's not like you can't shave your head or you can't whatever. It's, that's not the the idea. He says, "Ma halaqa illa arba maratin fin haji aw umrati." Naam kana yuqassiruhu wa qad yatrukuhu. Okay. So he says that the Prophet wasallam didn't shave his head more than maybe like four times. Like completely shave it. Completely shave it. Uh, in Hajj or in Umrah. And he would shorten it or he would leave it. So some people they saw him in different states. So some narrations will describe the Prophet's hair in different ways because people saw him at different times and he had a different haircut, obviously. So he says some of them would... Uh, so basically they, some people describe his hair as like reaching to his ear reaching to right below his ear um, sometimes it even says that he would braid his hair so that the people who are kind of like uh, you know <laughs> culturally prejudiced against certain behaviors so there's a narration for example from Umhani she says she says he came to Mecca sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he had four four braids in his hair. Basically, his hair was braided into four parts. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So he said that he would like it was on different sides, and sometimes he would leave it behind. Sometimes he would part it. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So that's uh, that's the issue of his hair. Sometimes he would leave it, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that uh, she would, she would kind of like help. She sometimes would, um, you know, take, like manage his hair, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. She would, you know, clean it and comb it and stuff like that. And it's out of love, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He would also, um, uh, he would how do I translate that he would perfume his hair sallallahu alaihi wasallam so like you know it would smell nice that might seem weird to people cuz i don't know if people really do that now but people do that with all kinds of things it's really nice they might do it i've seen people do it with like uh the you know those little strings that they put in books to mark your page some people perfume the the perfume the book marker so when you open the book, it smells nice. Or they might take like their sibha and they perfume the string on the sibha, so the sibha smells nice and stuff like that. So he sallam would sometimes. Uh, he, part of the point of this is that he would uh, he would groom his hair. Like the, it wasn't just that he had really long hair and he just let it go, or that he had a really long beard and he just let it go. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But he would put oil in it. He would put oil in his hair too, and like you know keep it in a sense so that it, it looked nice and that it it's he smelled nice and everything else and he would begin with the the right side when he's fixing his hair as he would do with all things that were not related to like cleaning oneself after the bathroom and stuff like that so and he would change it up you know uh and he would do some different things sallallahu alaihi wasallam uh, it's also known that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had some gray in his hair and in his beard sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and they say that that reached roughly around forty hairs between all of those places. It's ama- like how much detail you know they're really paying attention to the Prophet sallallahu enough to know how m- how much gray was in his hair sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So this was about forty hairs of gray. Um. Uh, and they didn't. He's. It says uh, that, and he says in the commentary that you know his hair uh, became gray, like not not because of he was stressed out or something, but it came. It became gray because of his. his like there's a difference between, and then you, you see this narration. So there's a narration. Shayibatni hudun wa waqiatun mursalat wa amiyatasaunun wa ida shamsu kuwirat. So there's a narration where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam says, um, "I became I became gray because of surat hud and surat waqia and in mursalat and amiyatasaunun, which is surat naba, and ida shamsu kuwirat." 
right? So he says these these hairs, they they or these suras, they made him gray, uh, and it says not because like he was not like in a worldly stressed out sense, but it says min ihtimamihi bi ummatihi, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So he's saying that, that his concern with these these suras when they were revealed, and the reason why it turned him gray was out of his concern for his people, for his ummah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That he was so concerned for his ummah, and uh, he saw like what what these surahs were saying, that that led him to uh, turn gray, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And he used to also uh, dye like his hair or his beard, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as he got older. But they, he would use henna, you know, so it wasn't like he would dye it black necessarily. Um, uh, and he would do it sometimes and he would not do it sometimes. So a lot of these things with the, the Prophet and them, if they weren't things that really uh, you need to follow, right? Like, so one of the things, if the Prophet them does something, it's an indication of its permissibility. If he doesn't do something, it's not really an indication of anything other than that he didn't do it. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Doesn't mean you can't do it. Doesn't mean, just means he didn't do it. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And sometimes he'd obviously do things, but they're not things that you have to do. So he'd do it sometimes and he'd leave it sometimes to make it clear to people that this is the situation. You can do it sometimes, you can leave it sometimes. Um, and this is kind of like, it seems, it seems really simple, but it's, it's really important. And especially it's really important when, you, when people are looking at you and they're following you. So even sometimes this might be good for like parents to think about. If there's things that I might have, I might have a custom to do things in a particular way. But if my kids are watching, they might come to think over time that that's the way that it has to be done. But it doesn't have to be done that way. So sometimes I might switch it around. Sometimes I might do it this way. Sometimes I might do it that way. Even in the way that we pray, you know, sometimes it's not a bad thing. Ibn Taymiyyah talks about this in uh, a work of his called Risalatul Ulfa, the uh, the treatise on bringing the hearts together. That when there's things like in prayer where the Prophet ﷺ did it multiple ways, it's good sometimes to not always do the way that we're accustomed to. So like, I'm Hanafi, so I pray with my hands usually around my belly button. and uh, But sometimes I might pray with them a little bit higher. Sometimes if I'm praying with Ustad Fu'ad, I might put them next to my side, just leave them down. You know, because these are different positions that are known in the fiqh. Usually, I'm Hanafi, so when I'm making tashahud, I just you know, at la ilaha you say la ilaha, it goes up, illallah, it goes down. That's that's the madhab. That's it. That's the only finger movement. Uh, actually, there's three or four opinions attributed to Abu Hanifa, but so you'd have to get in. <laughs> but that's the one that's more famous uh, in the madhab. So, but sometimes I'll do other things too. I might like do what Manikis do or do what Shafi'is do or whatever it might be, because these are not things that have to be done one way. And if it's not something that has to be done one way, then it's good to switch it around a little bit. Um, even on a personal level, it's kind of good, right? Like it's, it's good to have habits and ways that we're accustomed to doing things, but it's also good to break those habits sometimes so that we don't get overly rigid about things that don't need to be rigid about, uh, even on just like a totally personal level, you know? Um, maybe like, a person is really accustomed to not going out no matter what until they take a shower in the morning right and they wake up one day and they really need to go do something and they're not like super funky or nasty or anything let's just assume that <laughs> they're not in a state where like they absolutely need to take a shower but they're just you know i'm not accustomed to going out until i do this right so it's good to like break it sometimes i'm not you know and you know that can have any number of different uh ways of doing it. But the Prophet sliced on them, so sometimes he would dye his hair, sometimes he would part his hair, sometimes he would leave his hair, sometimes he would do kind of like braids, sometimes it would be shorter, sometimes it would be longer. Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Wasallam. The next section is on Kuhl. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he had like a bottle, a container of Kuhl. You know, I think everyone knows what Kuhl is that you know, the stuff you put on your eyes. And he would put uh, three times on each eye every night before he went to sleep, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
uh, and he encouraged actually people to do it. And he said, "Sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that it uh, it's beneficial to one's eyesight." So he says, "Innu yajlu basr, a yazidu fi nurihi, wa yunbitu shaar." That it's it's just it's good for the eyes, for the vision, and for the eyelashes and everything else. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. As for his clothes, Sallallahu alaihi wasallam, kana ahab thiabi ilahi and qamis. وَكَانَ كُمُّهُ إِلَى الْعَظْمِ الَّذِي يَلِيَ الْإِبْهَامِ So he, 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 li- he used to like to wear shirts, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, like a, like a tunic type overshirt. And his sleeve would go to like the, the, the bone of the, the thumb. So his, he would have like a longer sleeve, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Uh, wasn't it hot? It's, yes, it was hot. People also, you know, the thing is, I think we've lost a lot. It's it's really interesting. It's amazing, I think, that in uh, modern manufacturing of clothes, we have so much diversity, but we also have major limitations. Like, we don't know, we don't work with fabrics and styles and stuff in the same way that other people used to work with them. So they used to wear long things, and those long things are not as hot as our long things. Right? They're probably cooler than the short things that we wear. But that's because they knew what they were doing with the fabrics. It wasn't like you could only get them from one place, mass manufactured, and arrives in Amazon Prime the next day. Uh, so he he used to sallallahu alaihi wasallam wear these shirts, and he also um, he used to wear like a he used to have like a garment that was made from Yemen, and it had like red stripes in it. It says it had like red stripes. Uh, and, you know, he used to like sometimes put put clothing on his shoulder. Like if he had a, a shawl or something, he would put it on his shoulder. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So yeah, different kinds of garments that people would say that, that you know. Uh, this is an interesting one. That came up yesterday. ثَوْبًا جَدِيدًا جَعَلَ لَهُ إِسْمًا خَاصًا دُونَ إِسْمِهِ الْمَعْهُودَ عَلَى الصَّوَابِ وَيَقُولَ اللَّهُمَّ لَكَ الْحَمْدُ كَمَا كَسَوْتَنِيهِ أَسْأَلُكَ خَيْرُهُ وَخَيْرَ مَا سُنِي عَلَهُ وَعَوْذُ بِكَ مِنْ شَرِّهِ وَشَرِّ مَا سُنِي عَلَهُ So he used to say sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he got a new garment that he would name it. So he would get a new garment and he would name the garment. It's a really interesting sunnah because if you're going to name everything that you had, how many things can you really have? <laughs> Eventually at some point you'll be like, well, I can't get another shirt because if I get another shirt, I'm going to have too many names. You know? yeah. Unless you did what some of the Sahaba did where like in the Tabi'een where they're just like, this is Omar the first and this is Omar the second and this is Omar the third. Like I'm going to name all my shirts Omar. <laughs> this one's going to be one, two, three, four. And I'm going to name all my pants. I don't know what. But he would name things when he got them. them. So this is like, a very high level of uh, minimalism, right? When people talk about minimalism now, this is minimalism because you're only going to have so many items. And he used to do the same thing with his items. His swords had names. We're going to come to all of that. His swords had names. His shields had names. Um, his walking sticks had names. His bows had names. All of them had names. Uh, and he used to make this dua. Oh Allah, I praise you for covering me with this thing. And I ask you the good of it and the good of what it was made from. And I seek refuge in you from the bad of it and the bad of what it was made from. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَكَانَ مِنْ أَحَبِّ أَنْوَعَ الثِّيَابِ إِلَيْهِ ثِيَابٌ مِنْ قُطٌ أَوْ كَتَّانٌ مُحَبَّرَ أَيْ مُزَيَّنَ مُحَسَّنَ So he used to like things that were made out of cotton. Uh, things that are made out of... Kattan is what? Wool? I think kattan is wool. Anyone know? Linen? Is it just general linen? I can't remember. No, suf is wool, right? Like that, yeah. Linen. What is linen? It's katan. Aywa, Allah yiftahareek. Katan ali hu linen. Linen ali hu katan. That's linen. Okay. Fabricated linen, <laughs> modern, modern uh, linen. So he used to like these, and he used to like it if it was like had a little bit of design to it. Sallallahu uh, alaihi wasallam. And he used to wear different colors. So it says like he used to wear sometimes a garment that had some red in it. Sometimes he wore a garment that had some green in it. Um, 
usually these were like not that the entire garment was one color, but they were like pieces of it. You know, it had pinstripes or something that were of a particular color. Um, okay. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he used to wear zafaran, the abfi, he's like a yellowish kind of color. Um, but he used to really like to wear white. And uh, he used to actually encourage people to wear white. And he used to say that when someone dies, they should be um, uh, b- buried in white linens. Uh, and he also had garments, that, like he says, it's interesting, subhanAllah. So oftentimes, like, the, the old school style is you have the, the, the cuff is big, right? So it says specifically uh, he also had an a, a overgarment that was from the Byzantine area, like a European style. <laughs> it was basically like a European style that had narrow cuffs. Uh-huh. And he used to have special clothes that he would wear on Juma and the two days of Eid. Uh, and then other things that he would wear on the other days. So like these special days, he would wear the best of his clothes. I think in some probably cases, this is like people, uh, I know like in my wife's family, their tradition is that you have to wear new clothes on Eid. I don't know if other people have that tradition or not. It's not necessarily that his clothes was new every single Eid, but that the best of his clothes was worn on Eid. But it's not bad to buy new things. Um you know, except from all of us in those it's, it's, the point is to honor those days you know, the days of Eid are days that should be honored and the day of Jummah is a day that should be honored um, that's why you know in the past for example um, you know people I feel like this is an improvement on my part some people might disagree with me when I first started as an imam I was uh, very adamant that I wouldn't really wear special clothes like pants and a shirt and uh, even on Juma I would just wear pants and a shirt you know they'd be clean um, and I guess what people wear to work but like I wouldn't usually do more than that and after some time and like watching different teachers and watching reading the Shema and stuff like that and I felt like uh, I'm being a little bit extreme and now it's difficult for me to give. I feel really awkward if I give Juma without like a longer coat, because it's kind of like my, it's Juma special, you know. Or if I'm wearing, uh, like I just prefer something longer that's that's more, uh, kind of formal, that makes the occasion more formal. Could you just wear a suit? Yeah, you could wear a suit. It's fine. And it's nothing against a suit. I just don't personally like them. Um, I like I like Eastern clothes because generally speaking it was designed in order to cover you and I like to be covered it's just you know <laughs> I feel like it's it's part of uh, part of the whole thing so I'm not saying you have to or whatever it's people do your own thing so I'm just saying that uh, Juma is special and Eid is special and we should treat it as such even right now I feel awkward actually because teaching is special and I just feel kind of like overly casual right now in the way that I'm sitting here. But I was having a bad day. So, <laughs> so it didn't come together exactly the way that I wanted it to. So alhamdulillah, Allah forgive us. What was his lifestyle? Aishuhu. Aishuhu. So like his, his manner of, of life. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. كان صلى الله عليه وسلم أولا لا يجد من رديء التمر ما يملأ به بطنه الكريم اختيار منه لهذه الحالة ولم يكن ذلك اضطرارا. So he sallallahu alayhi wasallam he says here that he would not find from low quality dates that by which he could satiate himself. Okay. So he didn't have enough of low quality dates to eat that would make him full. And then he says, But this was But this was his choice. Because he preferred to be in that state, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And it wasn't something that he was doing out of being forced to do so. That was just the way that he lived, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
وَيَمْكُثُ الشَّهْرَ لَا يَسْتَوْقِلُ نَارًا لَا يَأْكُلُ فِي بَيْتِهِ إِلَّا الْمَاءُ وَالْتَمْرِ وَرَبَّمَا رَبَطًا حَجْرَ عَلَى بَطْنِهِ مِنْ شِدَّةٍ جُوعًا So it says that in a month would go by and there's no fire that's being lit in his home and they wouldn't find anything to eat other than water and dates. Uh, how remarkable are dates, by the way? You know, like we basically in our house, because we don't eat dates that much, we still have the dates from Ramadan. They're just sitting on the top of the fridge. Nothing happens to them. They're just sitting there. If I feel like eating one one day, I just take it down and eat it. Like it just, what an amazing thing. Also, the other thing is that that's that way is honey. Mm-hmm. Honey doesn't doesn't go bad. So like, that's, isn't that like amazing when you think about it? It's a food that doesn't go bad. <laughs> you just you just leave it there. Uh, I don't know why that that just that concept to me is like, and it's not canned tuna either. It's just honey. Just leave it out sitting there. Things to have around in case of emergency, you know. Uh, things to buy in bulk when they're on sale. <laughs> they don't go bad. So they would find water and dates, that's it. And maybe sometimes he would tie to his stomach a stone uh, as an attempt to like alleviate the, the, the severity of his hunger. That he would be so hungry that he would tie a stone to his stomach. And that was a means by which he would kind of like alleviate that hunger that he's feeling. Um, uh, and sometimes he would go to the other people from the companions. And, uh, you know, they would, he would go to different people's houses and they would eat and they would drink. Um, and, you know, that was fine. So it wasn't like he would force other people to be that way. Or it wasn't like if he was invited somewhere, he would say, no, I'm sorry, I only eat dates and water. You know, I can't eat your food or something like that. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He would eat what is, um, uh, what was being presented to him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, how he would do it. وَكَانَ النَّاسُ فِي صَدْرِ الْإِسْلَامِ فِي مِنْهُمْ So, like, in, there was some point in the early stages of Islam when people, actually, this wasn't their choice. Like, they were so persecuted and they were so oppressed that they didn't actually have anything to eat. Um, and then after Islam, they became very wealthy, right? Like, after Islam spread into these different places and people began to, there was, um, there was more... To, to be had in that regard But the Prophet Sallallahu approach stayed the same It wasn't that like Oh now we won all these battles And we have all these things And so on And now he's going to eat and His sunnah is established His sunnah is that he, he doesn't make a big deal Out of these things Whatever is there He eats it And uh, you know He wouldn't like Companions He would eat with companions That couldn't offer him very much And he was happy with it and they would, and he, even there's times when like they would present something to him, and it's nothing. It's like bread and vinegar, you know. So he knows that they feel shy about it. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So he would tell them, "Oh, look at vinegar. It's the best of dressings, and it can be eaten with all." Like he would praise vinegar. It's like this is all they have to put forth. They have put forth bread and vinegar. So he's like, "I'm just gonna praise vinegar for them. They feel good, right? That this is what they can offer." But he he didn't. Uh, he wouldn't make them feel bad about it. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Um, so you know, uh, and this was some like you know some people they had uh, uh, some of the companions were very strict about this also. Um, I want to say Abu Darda radiyallahu an, but basically he was in Sham, and uh, I know Abu Darda was in Sham, and this took place in Sham. It was probably him. But one of them they visit this is after the death of the Prophet Sai and then they go and visit him and they're sitting down and they're talking, they're remembering the Prophet and saying the Prophet told us not to get caught up in this world and he told us not to get too many things and this and that and and, and look at us, we gave in to this world and we we're like so extravagant now, we're totally overdoing it. And then the person Abu Darda is saying all these things and he's crying and stuff, right? And then the person he's talking to who's telling the story, he says, And we looked around and there's nothing in his house. There's like a little bucket for water. And there's a little bed that he sleeps on, like a little mat that he sleeps on. And there's like his, you know, one or two weapons or whatever it might be. And that's the entirety of what he has. And he's like, we just overdid it. We took all these things and we gave up. We betrayed the way of the Prophet. These people are like people of, 
azima, people of great ambition. Uh, the next section basically just describes uh, his khuf, you know the khuf, the, the leather sock. So the, the leather sock that the Prophet them used to wear, and it just basically says that they were black. And um, and they would be, the, the it's made from like the skin of an animal, right? So it, they would be tanned or dried out, however you do that in order to uh, purify them. That's that's a purification, by the way, in the fiqh, for everything other than uh, pig, which there's a debate on. But for the other other types of skins, other than human and, and pig, if you tan it, then that that's a means of purifying it. So then he would wear those as, as socks, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he would wipe on those. He also had sandals, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that. Uh, uh, that that he would wear and um <coughs> it's hard so he would it had like a, a strap that would go in between the toes and then uh and then obviously you'd you'd wear them and uh <coughs> and the point is that he would wear sandals sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, he prohibited people from wearing one sandal, like walking with one sandal. And the, so the, the scholars would like kind of say, "Well, what was the what was the idea behind that?" And basically, they said that the, the idea behind that is that if one walks with one sandal, it causes them physical harm, right? It causes them physical harm. It's like if you have an injury, and you're you're uh, you're leaning, you're favoring one side. You have a little bit of injury on your right side, so you start favoring the left side. When you start favoring the left side, then it messes up the left side. So they say that this is probably one of the wisdoms behind it. Um, but in any case, he would wear sandals and he would put the right one pr- put the right one on first. them, because it says, He used to like to do everything with the right side first. He also, them, had a ring. Uh, he, at first he had a ring of gold And then gold was prohibited for men So he got rid of it And so his his ring was one of silver And it had like a um, um, A fuss That had like a stone right, Or like a, a face to it And the f- that was from Aqiq Which is a type of stone um, That had come from Habasha That had come from Abyssinia and he would put it like this. So normally people wear the, the kind of like you see, you might see them wearing it like this. The Prophet Sallallahu would wear it with the with the stone side towards his palm. So he would wear it like that. Uh, so if you ever see me doing that, it's not because I'm being a weirdo. It's because that's what the Prophet Sallallahu used to do. Um, there's different narrations as to which hand he used to wear it on. Some people say he used to wear it on the right hand. Some people say he used to wear it on the left hand. It's generally agreed that it was on his pinky. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to wear it, used to wear his ring on on his pinky, and it, some again some said on the left hand, some on the right hand. Uh, also, though, that this like the fuss part of it would also be used for stamps and stuff. Like if you're stamping a letter and things, people would use that also for stamping things. Uh, so he sallallahu alaihi wasallam had this ring. Uh, one of them, one of the rings that he had. Uh, it says Muhammadun Rasulullah. So uh, that's that's why that's the one that you would stamp with. So in the in the flat part of it, it says Muhammadun Rasulullah. You take the ink and you'd stamp. When they send letters to people and stuff like that, he'd stamp with it. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. There is a really interesting narration about what happened to the ring of the Prophet Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I don't think it's here in its entirety. It's in the other book in its entirety in the in the room. But uh, I should really find the quote. Is any? Uh, did you see that book in there? The Nabahani one, the white one. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Because basically, what happened is that his ring, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, after him was passed to Abu Bakr, was passed to Omar. In the time of Omar, it was lost in a well. Okay, 
somehow the person who uh, in the time of Uthman from Omar to Uthman then in the time of Uthman it was lost in a well uh, uh, did I find it here? yeah it was lost in a well and they never found it after that and then that's like the time when all the fitin started it's just kind of sh- it's like sometimes you read stuff and you're like whoever wrote Lord of the Rings it's a Tolkien character <laughs> like this is an interesting ring story that the Prophet ﷺ had the ring it passed to Abu Bakr it passed to Omar in the time of Uthman it passed to Uthman in the time of Uthman the ring was lost in a well and they dug out the whole well and they couldn't find it and they never found it after that and that's like the same time when all of the fitin started all of the battles and like everything started to go downhill was the time when the ring was lost Allahu alam it could just be coincidence you know but it's an interesting story nonetheless uh, it's okay Nasr it's actually here in the bottom and so it's okay <coughs> so he says قُلْتُ فَكَانَ فِي ذَلِكَ إِشَارَةٍ إِلْإِنْتِقَادِ الْأَمْرَ عَلَيْهِ وَذَلِكَ ابْتِدَاءً فِتِنْ he says it actually in the bottom that's when the fitin started وَكَانَ وَاتَّخَطَّمَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَيْسَلَمْ فِي يَمِينِهِ وَيَسَارِهِ فَمَنْ رَأَهُ عَلَى حَالَةٍ وَصَفَهَا so he says sometimes he would do it on his right hand sometimes he would do it on his left hand and whoever saw him in whichever way they saw him they described it that way sallallahu alayhi wa sallam maybe we'll stop we'll do like one or two more next section is on his sword and his chain mail sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kanadahu asyaf and qabda min fidda so he had one of them that was called qabda it was made from silver uh, silver was part of it and then it was it was made by Beni Hanifa who were known for like their sword swordsmanship making swords um, he also had a like mail a chain mail that he would wear Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam a light one that was uh, says they're like little circles upon little circles that will be worn on your body right sounds like chain mail and then uh, he also had one of those that would go like under his helmet he was wearing a helmet to cover like the neck area and stuff sallallahu alayhi wasallam so he used to wear that it says that the one under his uh, like the covers it used to be worn under your hat so you could wear it under your hat he used to actually wear turbans oftentimes going into battle uh, in general he sallallahu alayhi wasallam would wear a turban so you'd put it under your hat and then you put the hat on top of it and you tie the turban on top of that so it says that on the day when the conquest of Mecca he was wearing that sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and then the last section we'll cover maybe well it's a little bit longer but I'll leave some of it is the section on his turban so he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he entered Mecca he was wearing a black turban and uh, he was wearing it when he gave that sermon when he would wear his turban he would wear it with the tail of it hanging between between his shoulder blades down to like the middle of his back sallallahu alayhi wa sallam um, and it was very common that he would wear that He would wear it in, in, in Jummah and stuff like that <coughs> Didn't have like a particular size That had to be worn But he would wear that I think I mentioned before that uh, Up until probably like the very very recent past I, I never in my life had worn a turban The only turban that I had worn was uh, the Azhar one Which you know it kind of like counts But it doesn't really count because it's uh, it's really small, it's an, and and uh, and they don't leave the tail down, generally speaking. Some some people do, out of wanting to follow the sunnah. But generally speaking, the azhar turban it doesn't have the tail in the back. It's just wrapped, and it's like maybe one layer, and it's really thin. Um, and the hat is kind of like really thick, so you don't really feel that you're wearing a turban. The reason why I'm saying all of this uh, for for the brothers, if you haven't tried it before. You should try it. Um, it's it's a interesting experience because there's some narrations that are di- they're disputable, but uh, some of them are stronger or weaker. But that that it's said that the turban is the crown of the Arabs. So like the you know different people had different things they would wear on their heads, and and the crown of the Arabs was the turban. And when you tie like the turban on your head, it actually feels like a crown, which I didn't really expect. But it, you feel like you're actually wearing a crown. And there is a, a certain level of karama to it. Sure, someone could say that was a habit of the Arabs and so on and so forth. We don't have to follow these things. It's true. There's no like, 
you don't have to follow it. Nobody's saying you have to follow it. Just saying that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to do it. And if you do it out of... There's an important principle in the Sunnah, which is that there's different layers of things that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did. Some of them he did out of guidance, which is, I mean, we're supposed to do it. Some things he did out of habit. We don't have to do it. We could do it or we could not do it. But things that he did out of habit, we should just be careful a little bit. Because I know, like, for example, when I was in college, we used to be really hardcore on this point of, like, you don't have to dress like that in this Eastern clothes and stuff. That's not the, that's not the, sun, the sunnah. Sunnah is to uh, dress in the clothes of your people or the sunnah is to this or that or whatever it might be. You don't have to dress like that. And it's that's mostly a response to people who take the other side too far. Be like, you know, you have to wear a thobe or you have to wear, you know, you don't have to wear a thobe or something. You can wear whatever ethnically inspired dress you want. It's your choice, right? <laughs> as long as it meets certain conditions. But... Uh, Still, there are things that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did, right? And if he did them, then uh, we should, we should, at least, even if we don't want to do them, like respect that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did them, you know? It, yeah, you don't have to do it, but he did it. If you want to just like experience something that he experienced, it's not a bad thing either. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that's the turban. Interestingly, you know, the turban was uh, an Arab thing, right? And But the turban spread to, like, if you look at pictures of Muslims in all kinds of places up to, like, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, they're always wearing turbans. Uh, it's really remarkable, all over the place. Not, not in places that were, like, customarily known to wear turbans, but that became something that was customarily known of the Muslims. This was something that the Muslims did, so you know, you don't have to bring it back. But I'm just these are just comments, you know. They're interesting, and we'll stop here. Any comments or anything that people have? More than free to them. Yes, I. It says that he would take it off, that the ring that said Muhammad and Rasulullah, that he would take it off when he goes to the restroom. Um, you know, generally, if the name of Allah is on something, then you don't want to take it into that space. Or at least put it in your pocket or something. Uh, when it comes to wearing verses and stuff like that, um, there actually is precedent, I think, can't remember who, but there is some level of, uh, and this is where that whole like our conversation around talismans and stuff comes. So I don't want to like fall off the realms of fitna right now in terms of fiqh opinions because I'm not prepared to present it. But I recall reading something about this like ten years ago, literally. Um, and there was at least I think it was a Sahabi who had a particular practice that like for children in particular who weren't old enough to know how to recite Ayatun Kursi to write Ayatun Kursi down and put it around their neck. Uh, so th there is like some level of precedent for that. Where it should go and what the limits on it should be and like how we should think about it and so on and so forth, you know. That's, uh, but it seems like that was something that like if they couldn't do it themselves type thing. Mm. Yeah, nice protection. Yeah. Mm. But all of those things need their own presentation because they're gonna fall off the deep end, you know. But uh, there, there are some, there are some good books actually that discuss some of these things. That maybe eventually, those are that's probably more of like a Monday night thing than a Sunday night thing. But maybe on Monday nights we might get into that stuff eventually. Inshallah. Um, yeah. Anyone else? You mentioned that uh, they used to write the radio, or they to To be buried in it. Oh, to, be, to be buried in it, yeah. Not necessarily just for visiting. The kefin, yeah. Kefin, the kefin should be white. 
um, yeah. but not necessarily for visitation. Yeah. I don't know that there's a particular color. Um, I don't recall coming across anything about wearing a particular cover color to the graves. Graveyards. Barakallahu feekum. Inshallah, those who want to pray, 